The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But what then is capital punishment but the most premeditated of murders, to which no criminal's deed, however calculated it might be, can compare? For there to be equivalents, the death penalty would have to punish a criminal who had warned his victim of the date at which he would inflict a horrible death on him and who, from that moment onward, had confined him at his mercy for months. Such a monster is not encountered in private life. Albert Camus Given the predominantly Protestant population of Fulton County and Hancock County, where Donnie Bull's trial had been moved to, they might be of value to mention within their antiquated pages of scripture, Exodus states, But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Furthermore, Leviticus echoes this same assertion. Anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. However, Jesus condemns the practice of personal retaliation in the Sermon on the Mount, saying, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to see you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Notably, Jesus is not revoking the Old Testament decree of eye for an eye. Instead, he is delegating the responsibility of the civil authority to penalize criminals rightfully from the responsibility we all have in a personal context to love our neighbors and enemies. But what is the significance of eye for an eye? The implication of this principle is the sheer longevity of its relevance. Our modern court systems still abide by this guiding precept. When determining a judicial penalty, eye for an eye has literally influenced the appropriate penalty decisions of millions of legal cases over thousands of years. But how rightfully so is still up for debate. Moreover, it would be inattentive not to illuminate that within that same book, the original context within Leviticus of the term scapegoat was a Jewish purification ritual well described upon its aged dog-eared pages wherein a goat was symbolically infused with the transgressions of the community and driven into the wilderness. In its original context, the scapegoat ritual was a central practice in the Levitical celebration of Yom Kippur, in layman's terms, the Day of Atonement. During this ritual, the priests sought to spiritually cleanse the temple, a symbolic analog for the Israelite kingdom, through a series of prayers, benedictions, and animal sacrifices. The process of symbolic purification was duly concentric, beginning with the sanctification of the priest and the Holy of Holies, and expanding outward to encompass the entire body of politic and the physical landscape surrounding the community. Once these purifications were complete, The sins of the community were then symbolically transferred to the scapegoat itself, which was then released into the desert. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin, offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to present the two goats before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. 
but the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat. When Aaron has finished making atonement from the most holy place, the tent of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and the rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it into the desert. This ceremony, whose richly symbolic contents give it an air of high antiquity, has spawned a variety of interpretations and commentaries, both ancient and modern. But what is consistent is that the goat is to be banished and imprisoned in the desert, a no-man's land from which there is no return. To such a desert must be sent the scapegoat with the sins of the community on its head, from which there can be no return. Even in Christian thought, Jesus Christ came to be seen as a scapegoat whose sacrificial death led to the purification of the human community. In Christian theology, the story of the scapegoat in Leviticus is interpreted as a symbolic prefiguration of the self-sacrifice of Jesus, who takes the sins of humanity on his own head, having been driven into the wilderness, outside the city, by order of the high priests. He who properly atones for an offense and thus offers something that the offended ones love equally is the scapegoat. But by suffering out of love and obedience, Jesus gave more to God than was required to compensate for the offense of the whole human race. He is a proportion for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. In the modern, almost cliched use of the term to describe an individual who is unjustly blamed for the misfortunes of others, is derived from these early religious usages. Now, a common turn for an individual who is selected to bear the blame for a calamity. A scapegoat is the whipping boy, the fall guy. That goat or ass is released into the wilderness, bearing all the sins of the community, which have been placed on the goat's head by a priest, rather, a judge. When there's a problem or crime, someone has to be held accountable for the mistake. The process is always the same. Identify the cause of a problem and fix it. This often includes a lengthy process of conducting a root cause analysis or discovering why something happened. And the faster the problem is fixed, the criminal case is closed, the better, as finding someone to blame for the problem is usually the first step in making the issue disappear. However, the best kind of scapegoating doesn't solve the problem too cleanly, but instead creates a loop where the problem reoccurs, where within, first, investigators identify the parties to be involved. Secondly, the weakest link is identified. Once identified the weakest link, this person has to be a person who is oblivious to the crime, but also a likely suspect. Convicted offenders are the best culprits, since statistically, they are more likely to get arrested again. The farther and less personal the connection to the victim, the better. But certainty has to be made by investigators and by prosecution alike to sever any links, particularly those invisible ones, that they may possess with their soon-to-be scapegoat, so that no fingers will come pointing back at them. Seemingly, whether the goat is actually guilty or not appears to be of little value compared to closure. Every capital murder case involves at least one deceased victim. Vindication for the victims and closure for victims' families are often held out as a primary reason for supporting the death penalty. However, many people in this circumstance believe that another killing will not necessarily bring closure and that the death penalty is frankly a disservice to victims. The families and associates of the victims, sometimes called co-victims, play a key role in how a case proceeds in the courts. Prosecution may consult with the families on whether to seek the death penalty or accept a plea for a lesser sentence. If death is pursued, family members may be asked to testify at the sentencing phase to describe the impact the murder has had on their own lives. Victims' families often speak at legislative hearings on the death penalty, both in favor of and in opposition of a death penalty statute. Meanwhile, it dedicates scarce resources to a small handful of cases while the real needs of the vast majority of victims' families are ignored. However, there is no denying the idea of closure as powerful. 
2015, the FBI reported nearly 15,700 homicides nationwide. A 2007 study suggested that for every homicide victim, 6 to 10 family members are indirectly victimized. That figure excludes many friends, colleagues, neighbors, or others who also suffer when a person they know is murdered. When they grieve, survivors must not only figure out how life goes on without their loved one, but also process the violence behind the person's death. And despite the desire for resolution, they'll tell you repeatedly that there's no such thing as closure. But death penalty advocates and politicians argue that when the state executes a person who has committed a terrible crime, the act undoubtedly brings closure to the victim's family. But how can anything, let alone a scheduled execution, be so simple? Repeatedly, it is well documented if you ask murder victims' families. Closure is the F word, and they'll tell you over and over and over again that there's no such thing as closure. Additionally, some families can move on sooner because their loved one's killers were sentenced to life without parole rather than the death penalty, as they weren't re-traumatized in the multiple appeals that often precede an execution. Also, when states use capital punishment, the decision has consequences not only for the murder victim's families, jurors, and the person sentenced to die, but also for the prison personnel responsible for carrying out death sentences, and the families of people who sit on death row. Unlike politicians, correctional officers who work on death row are also going to go home and live with the psychological consequences for the rest of their lives. And so will their families. It is no mystery as to why certain states that carry out series of executions take advantage of prison staff who live in rural farm communities with few jobs, where households still have an old way of thinking and doing and being. There is a certain right by which we may deprive a man of life, but none by which we may deprive him of death. That is mere cruelty," said Frederick Nietzsche in his book, Human, All Too Human. However, once again, the idea of closure is nonetheless powerful and seductive. And the argument has strongly been argued that the notion that death sentences and executions provide closure to victims' families is a myth. And studies do, in fact, suggest that the death penalty does not bring closure and interferes with their healing process. Nonetheless, the old adage persists. Capital punishment can help bring closure to victims' families, deter other would-be murderers, and express the moral outrage of our society for the most atrocious crimes. Thus, 10 days after Donnie Bowles' April 10, 1996, guilty conviction for the double homicide of Donna and Justine Tompkins, his death penalty hearing was rescheduled for June 3rd and 4th. At that time, Judge William Henderson would decide Donnie's eligibility for the death penalty and his sentence. The sentencing had been initially scheduled for May 7th. However, one of the four lawyers involved had a scheduling conflict. The lawyer, Donnie's defense attorney, Dean Stone, and the question of the cause of his inability to be present should be dog-eared, and in due time, we will get back to this notable causation and its relevance and potential to determine the outcome of the death penalty hearing. And on May 16, 1996, an expression of discontent over the case echoed out across central Illinois with the headline that read, Well, county budget hit hard by trial bills. Officials expressed discontent over high costs and bull trial. Lewistown. The final chapter is yet to be written in the Donald Bull Jr. double murder trial, but the bills are already coming due, and that's left local officials in a word, grumpy. Fulton County set aside an extra $100,000 in its contingency fund for expenses relating to the Bull trial, 
Now as the bills pour in, county officials hope it will be enough. County board members groused through bill payments Tuesday as they were asked to approve $41,810.24 for expenses ranging from jury meals to paid defense witnesses to attorney costs. At one point, after approving $18,787.50 in payment to defense attorney Alyssa McMillan, acting board chairwoman Wanda Williams turned to the finance committee chairman and asked, Is that it? I doubt it was Bernard Oak's response. Shortly afterward, he pondered whether he would need to bring smelling salts for shock board members when, later this year, he prepares a complete list of trial costs. Board members sniffed at the various expenses. After McMillan's bill was approved, Ray Moore commented, You think she could have thrown the 50 cents in? I would have. The other defense attorney, Dean Stone, billed the county for $14,550. Oak said it's too early to know the total expenses. However, most board members remain optimistic that there will be sufficient funds. I think it will be, said Brad Anderson, also on the financial committee. I hope it will be enough. But Fulton County State's Attorney Ed Danner said the price tag of $100,000 plus shouldn't surprise anyone. I'm not really surprised or staggered, he said but it probably exceeded their expectations. Danner noted such expenses as attorney's fees and paid witnesses can't be avoided if one wants to provide a good defense. In nothing McMillan's or Stone's bills, he pointed out that if he had been paid by the hour for all the time he has put into his case since January 1993, he might have racked up more than $500,000 in bills. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I have some things to note here. One, the apparent difference between Danner claiming to have put in $500,000 worth of hours on his prosecution and the $33,337.50 Donnie's lawyers had invested in their defense. That is a staggering $466,662.50 more spent on Donnie's prosecution and less spent on his defense during a case potentially resulting in execution. Secondly, the discrepancy between Ms. McMillan earning $18,787.50 and Mr. Stone making $14,550 is $4,237.50 less than his counterpart. Why? Well, reference back to that scheduling conflict for the death penalty hearing. The one we have dog-eared. And hold that thought. We will delve into that page in due time. Thirdly, not only is $33,337.50 a lot of money, but consider how much Fulton County theoretically spent on erasing Donnie Bull from its ranks of county residents, whether guilty or innocent, banishing him to said desert where he should await death, be it through state execution or natural causation, whichever came first, a one-way ticket with no return. According to State Attorney Ed Danner, $500,000, not including public defender fees. May 22, 1996, the Peoria Journal-Star. Police, Sheriff adds dogs to search for teen. Bull requests new trial, attorney. Bernadotte, the Fulton County Sheriff's Department plans to add dogs to its search crew after two days of unsuccessfully searching for a Lewistown teenager who is believed to have drowned Monday in the Spoon River. Alvin Brent Crimmins, 17, was last seen floating on the east side of the spillway on the Spoon River about noon Monday after he and a friend were sucked over the spillway while swimming. The friend managed to swim to safety. Donald Bull Jr., 33, dropped off handwritten motions this week while in court for other business, according to Fulton County Circuit Clerk Mary Hampton. Prosecution and defense attorneys called the action routine. Among other things, Bull alleges that Canton police used improper search techniques, that prosecutors failed to share evidence with defense attorneys, that jurors were biased against him, and that evidence was overlooked. He also asked that defense attorney Alyssa McMillan be removed from his case. He's got nothing better to do, so he might as well spend time filing motions, said Prosecutor Edward Parkinson. I think it was one of the cleanest and air-free trials I've ever put on. He was afforded every constitutional safeguard he could have had. 
June 4th, 1996. Bull faces death and murders. Carthage. A judge Monday morning found Donald Bull Jr., eligible for capital punishment, dismissed a barrage of jailhouse legal motions, and began Bull's death penalty hearing. In that hearing, three Canton women testified to attacks on them by Bull in 1983, 1989, and 1993. In two of those attacks, Bull choked a woman to unconsciousness. Tanya Davis also testified that in February 1993, just weeks after the murder of Donna and Justine Tompkins, she found Bull stalking outside her home after she and her sister had spoken to Bull in a tavern. In another portion of the state's case for the death penalty Monday, members of the victim's families told the court how the loss had affected their lives. Mary Amicucci, Donna Tompkins' younger sister, read a statement on behalf of herself, her four siblings, and her father. She described Donna Tompkins as a devoted sister and Justine Tompkins as a toddler with great potential. Our pain and suffering are real, she said. When I imagined adult life, I never imagined having to cope with the murder of my big sister and little niece. Now I can no longer count on Donna in this life. My right and privilege to be near her was brutally taken away, Santa Makuchi. And it is very sad we will never see what this child could have become. John Tompkins, Donna Tompkins' estranged husband, and Justine Tompkins' father also spoke. The only thing this husband and father can do on this earth now is to drive to a cemetery in Sterling two or three times a year and decorate the grave and pour out my tears. The defense began its case Monday afternoon with a testimony from Michael Gilbert. Gilbert said Bull has a mental impairment that causes him to misrepresent information and react inappropriately. This kind of impairment is not something that is fixable, said Gilbert. To some degree, his deficiency comes into play in everything he does. Gilbert said Bull reads at a first grade level, spells at a fourth grade level, and scored in the bottom percentile in some of the tests he performed. Gilbert says such problems could lead to impaired logic and misperceptions, and then to frustration when Bull could not solve problems. That could cause Bull to act inappropriately at times, he said. But if that were the case, prosecuting attorney Edward Parkinson asked, how could Bull file his own legal motions? Gilbert said Bull probably had lots of help. Before the hearing began, Judge William Henderson considered a barrage of motions Bull had filed on his own behalf. These motions included a request for a new trial and another asking that one of his defense attorneys be dismissed. Bull said he wanted a new attorney because he disagreed with Alyssa McMillan's approach to mitigation or the proportion of the defense in which attorneys tried to present facts that might exist that explain the client's wrongdoing and lessen the severity of the sentence. I'm facing the death penalty here, said Bull. I think I have the right to mitigation. Henderson found the motion groundless. I see nothing to indicate that these motions are anything but serious, Henderson said. Your case was one of the best tried cases I've seen. Okay, speaking of mitigation, it should now be pointed out that Donald Bull, now on his own behalf, and in his own handwriting, submitted to the court, beginning on May of 96, motions for the dismissal of court-appointed co-counsel due to ineffective assistance of counsel by Ms. McMillan, a motion to extend and or delay time of sentencing hearing in order to sufficiently prepare mitigation, a motion to obtain free transcripts and court records, as he is indigenous, and a motion for substitution of counsel. Within the motions, Donnie claims, 1. Because of the counsel's ineffective assistance, the co-counsel has deprived the defendant of an adequate defense by concealing improper use of a mitigation expert. 2. That mitigation expert was approved to be obtained before the trial for the defense to prepare for mitigation factors at that critical stage of a sentencing hearing if the court convicted the defendant of the capital penalty qualifying case. 3. That co-counsel's ineffectiveness and unreasonable direction of the mitigation's expert has produced a fabricated and false report depriving the defendant of effective assistance of counsel and true mitigation factor to produce to the court. 4. That defendant's counsel, Dean Stone, directed the co-counsel to prepare this part of the defendant's defense in case the defendant was to be convicted. Wherefore, Defendant Donald R. Bull respectfully requests this court to grant this motion because of irrevocable conflict with the counsel. Basically, Donnie was essentially pissed off. 
He was angry at his defense team for bringing in his family to confirm that he had been abused as a child, and a psychologist who stated that Donnie was not always necessarily responsible or culpable for his behavior. Thus, after the guilty verdict, falling back on a plan to get Donnie a more lenient sentence, particularly life instead of death, in exchange for suggesting he was, though not necessarily mentally competent enough to be psychologically culpable, was indeed physically guilty for the double homicide. At one point during the trial, State's Attorney Ed Danner had even offered Donnie a deal, a guilty plea in exchange for life. What did Donnie do? He outright refused. I am an innocent man, he said. No deal. And Donnie indeed claimed his innocence until the end. And during mitigation was the only moment in which there was any mere suggestion from the defense that Donnie may have been guilty of these crimes. And this act was against Donnie's wishes. So Donnie wanted a new trial at most, and a new team at least. As he stated, I am facing the death penalty here. I think I have the right to mitigation. The mitigation that he preferred, that he desired, not the one he got. To clarify, mitigation is defined as an action of reducing the severity, seriousness, or painfulness of something in order to lessen the consequences. And Donnie was none too happy at the resorts of which his legal team was willing to go, presenting testimony and facts that might have explained their client's wrongdoing and lessened the severity of his sentence. Nonetheless, all motions were denied as mentioned, and Henderson found the option groundless, stating, I see nothing to indicate that these motions are anything but serious. This case was one of the best-tried cases I've seen. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, take note that twice now, once by Prosecutor Edward Parkinson, and secondly by Judge Henderson, Donnie Bull's trial has set a new high bar, as the trial, quote, was one of the cleanest and air-free trials I'd ever put on. This case was one of the best-tried cases I've ever seen. Now it is your duty, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, to determine how accurate or inaccurate these statements may come to be. And if such is the case, what those vows may suggest about our judicial system as a whole. June 5th, 1996. Bull gets death and murders a mother, daughter. Judge says killings of toddler, burning bodies merit sentence. Carthage. Life in prison might have been sufficient punishment for Donald Bull Jr. had he only raped and murdered Donald Tompkins. But also killing Tompkins' three-year-old daughter and setting fire to their bodies, Bull forfeited his right to life, a judge ruled Tuesday. Bull was sentenced to death by Judge William Henderson for the 1993 murders. The victim's family members stood and applauded after the verdict was rendered. And Donna Tompkins' father, Donald Yamakuchi, shouted, You scum! as Bull was led out of the courtroom. You snuck into that young woman's home, strangled her, and then raped her, said Henderson as he read his decision. If you had stopped there, I think life in prison might have been sufficient. But then you hurt that little girl and set them on fire. Justine couldn't hurt you. She couldn't testify against you. And for that, I sentence you to death. An August 14th execution date was set. Bull testified his innocence to the end and pleaded not to be put to death. I fear death very much, he said through tears, after attorneys finished their arguments. Please do not put me to death and tell people justice has been done, because it hasn't. I did not kill Donna or Justine Tompkins, or start any fires. Bull claimed that he had a relationship with Donna Tompkins, that she insisted be kept private. During the trial, he claimed that he had fallen asleep drunk in his car 
after a tire went flat about the time of the murders. His attorneys also tried to tie the crime to David Haynes, a former co-worker of Donna Tompkins, who was the first to notice the fire in the Tompkins Canton apartment. But prosecutors argued that Bull's primary contact with Tompkins had been in the autumn of 1992 when he sold her a sofa. Now if I might briefly interject once again, ladies and gentlemen, it is a necessary step to proper scapegoating that the farther and less personal the connection to the victim, the better. Carrying on, a Hancock County jury found Bull guilty on all counts after only two hours of deliberation in April. The trial was moved from Fulton County to Hancock County because of the extensive publicity generated by the case. After the trial, Amicucci said there would never be a sense of closure for his family. The exchange of one worthless life for two priceless lives is not a fair exchange, he said. He said he plans to follow any appeals Bull might make to ensure justice is served. Likewise, John Tompkins, Donna Tompkins' estranged husband, said he didn't feel the case was over yet. Complete justice has almost been served for Donna and Justine, he said, but not until he is extinguished will it be fully served. Bull's family and attorneys had no comment after the sentencing. Earlier in the day, defense attorneys finished pleading their case for leniency at the sentencing hearing. Bull's sisters, a cousin, and an aunt all testified to Bull's learning problems in school and his poor relationship with his father. Sherry Spangler testified that Bull was frequently beaten by his father, Donald Bull Sr., and that the father rarely had anything to do with Bull except criticize him. Bull's aunt, Gloria Riley, testified that Bull was a caring father for his two children and was always polite to his family. The Donald Bull I know is a caring young man, she said, but when Fulton County State's Attorney Ed Danner asked whether Bull's drinking, drug use, womanizing, and gambling were similar to his father's behavior, she said Bull was never like that to her. He was taught that, she said. That's all he knew. But prosecuting attorney Edward Parkinson said in his argument for the death penalty that the defense case proved nothing. Lots of us never went hunting with our dad, or we got the belt put to us like Bull did, he argued. Does that turn us into vile creatures like this monster? He pointed out that Bull had attacked other women before, and noted that no mitigating factor such as mental distress or self-defense applied in the case. He has forfeited his right to life, said Parkinson. Don and Justine Tompkins should be able to count on a lot more tomorrows than yesterday's, and they didn't get that. Defense attorney Dean Stone argued that life in prison would be, in essence, a sentence of death in prison, just a natural one. He pointed out that a psychologist testified Bull has a mental dysfunction that causes him to process information improperly and to react incorrectly. However, he noted, the psychologist said Bull would perform well in a structured environment such as prison. Further, Stone said Bull had behaved himself in prison, not joining gangs or violating other laws during his imprisonment for another attack on another woman. He also argued that there were questions about the case, including why there was no sign of forced entry to the apartment and why there was no gasoline can at the scene of the arson. That suggested Bull might be innocent and therefore shouldn't be put to death. A sentence of life without parole is a sentence that allows him to watch his children grow, said Stone. That is fair. That is just. June 7th, Peoria Journal-Star. Limiting death row appeals. One in the federal courts should be enough. Perhaps never before in central Illinois history have two murderers been sentenced to death within a week of each other. You don't have to be enamored with the death penalty to think that Arlie Ray Davis and Donald Bull Jr. got the sentences they deserved. Bull was convicted of raping 30-year-old Donna Tompkins, then killing the Canton woman and her three-year-old daughter. Testimony indicated at least three other women had been victims of his brutality. Davis was convicted of kidnapping, raping, and murdering 42-year-old Lori Gwynn of Kiwani. He is a suspect in the disappearance of four Peoria-area women and the death of another. Five survivors have told police that he beat and choked them. Coincidentally, on the same day that testimony was presented about Bull's past, 
the U.S. Supreme Court was hearing arguments about federal legislation limiting appeals of death row inmates. This decision could affect how long Davis and Bull live. The narrow issue is whether Congress can limit access to the Supreme Court and limit death row inmates to one appeal under most circumstances. The larger issue is whether the ghastly process of appeal after appeal helps ensure that innocent people will not be put to death or amounts to a delaying tactic to extend the lives of murderers. Congress decided this year it had become the latter. The average death row stay nationwide is 11 years, and it's getting longer. A large part of the reason is that inmates whose appeals are rejected have until now been permitted to return again and again to the federal courts by simply raising new questions. When you're looking at death and all you got is time, you've got nothing to lose to clog the court system, says Peoria County State's Attorney Kevin Lyons. While we're mindful of how serious it is for the state to take a life, we were inclined to think there's nothing so terribly wrong with limiting the number of federal appeals to one, unless, of course, new evidence arises, and the legislation permits that. What's wrong with requiring all of the issues to be raised in the same appeal? And if most state governments, Illinois included, limit appeals in state courts to one, why should the Constitution be threatened if the federal government does the same? This issue gets a great deal of attention, more than it deserves in terms of the nation's problems, because of emotions and because of fear. Nonetheless, it is understandable that those who knew Lori Gwynn and Donna Tompkins would find it appalling that their killers should live for another decade or more when they count not to give their victims one more day. Ladies and gentlemen, I ask you to take note of a couple points here. First, remember that name, Arlie Ray Davis the Central Illinois man sentenced to death within a week of Donnie. Secondly, I ask you to just ponder a moment as I had. A killer who had been on the loose in Central Illinois, suspected in the disappearance of four Peoria area women and the death of a fifth, with an M.O. of rape and choking. Ask yourself, is it possible that Arlie Ray Davis might have made his way down Route 24 to the community of Canton, Illinois? a 45-minute drive to the southwest, just as he had from Peoria to Kiwani, where he had killed Lori Gwynn, a drive of roughly the same distance, if not a little further, to the northwest up Highway 78, another highway that leads directly north out of Canton, Illinois, I might add. However, at the end of the day, regardless of your thought on the possibility, the probability, please remember that name, Arlie Ray Davis. July 24, 1996. Convicted double murderers request for a new trial denied. Bull still facing death in Canton killings. Lewistown. Convicted murderer Donald Bull Jr. lost the first battle Tuesday in an attempt to save himself from execution. Judge William Henderson denied a motion by Bull and his attorneys for a new trial, meaning he still faces the death penalty. In Tuesday's effort to win Bull a new trial, his attorneys contended the court made 47 errors in Bull's original trial. 47, ladies and gentlemen, in one of the cleanest and most error-free trials ever put on, one of the best-tried cases Judge Henderson had ever seen. Though Fulton County State's attorney Ed Danner said the contentions of error were, in fact, simply decisions by the judge that went against the defense and the judge's denial of Donnie's motion, came as no surprise to Danner. As he stated, this was just the beginning of what would be a long process, one that virtually guarantees Bull would not be executed as scheduled on August 14, 1996, and that in fact, he did not expect developments in the case for 18 to 24 months, delaying said closure for the family for an excruciating amount of time and number of appeals. And it will ultimately be up to you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, if those 47 errors, as we begin to review them, were consequential, and if they justify a retrial in the least, and an enduring suffering of a family in need of that all-elusive concept of closure, or as close as a loved one can get, at most, to determine, ladies and gentlemen, most perfect, clean, and error-free. Before we adjourn, 
I want to again offer you those insightful words of Albert Camus that cut right through the matter like a hot knife to butter. But what then is capital punishment but the most premeditated of murders, to which no criminal's deed, however calculated it might be, can compare? For there to be equivalents, the death penalty would have to punish a criminal who had warned his victim of the date at which he would inflict a horrible death on him, and who, from that moment onward, had confined him at his mercy for months. Such a monster is not encountered in private life. Lastly, those 47 contended errors included a motion for judgment notwithstanding verdict or, alternatively, for a new trial. And in Donnie's own handwriting, I present to you 1. That on about April 10, 1996, the defendant was found guilty of first-degree murder, aggravated arson, and concealment of homicidal death. 2. That on September 14, 1995, the trial court erred in denying defendant's motion for certain orders regarding pretrial publicity. 3. That on September 14, 1995, the trial court erred in denying defendant's motion to suppress blood evidence from Fulton County case number 93CF46. 4. That on September 14, 1995, the trial court erred in denying defendant's motion to compel a prosecutor to disclose whether it will request the death penalty if defendant is convicted of murder. 5. That the defendant was prejudiced by not knowing whether the state would seek the death penalty until March 19, 1996 when the state filed a notice of intent during the trial of this cause and after jury selection had begun. 6. That on September 7, 1995, the trial court erred in denying defendant's motion to suppress evidence of rings and key. 7. That on September 18, 1995, the trial court erred in denying defendant's motion to reverse Witherspoon potential jurors. 8. That on December 18, 1995, the trial court erred in denying defendant's motion to declare IRS 38 section 9-1 unconstitutional. 9. That on December 18, 1995, the trial court erred in denying defendant's motion to prohibit death qualification of the jury at the guilty innocent stage of the trial. 10. That on December 18, 1995, the trial court erred in denying defendant's motion to preclude the state from death qualifying a potential juror or an alternative motion for hearing to determine that there is a substantial probability that the defendant is eligible for the death penalty. 11. That on December 18, 1995, the trial court erred in denying defendant's motion to declare the Illinois death penalty statute unconstitutional. 12. That on December 18, 1995, the trial court erred in denying defendant's motion for individual voir dire and sequestration of jurors during voir dire. That on or about March 13, 1996, the trial court erred in granting the state's motion in limine to prevent the defendant from cross-examining the state's DNA witness, David Metzger, on disciplinary records of the witness concerning his commission of theft, official misconduct, and filing false property forms during the course of his employment at the state crime lab because this evidence went directly to the witness's credibility. 14. That on April 3, 1996, the trial court erred in denying portions of the defendant's motion in limine to preclude the use of a portion of a letter from the defendant to Mike Price. 15. That on March 29, 1996, the trial court erred in denying defendant's counsel opportunity to cross-examine the state's witness, David Haynes, during the state's presentation of the witness concerning the witness's statements to police and concerning his activities during the time of the fire as being beyond the scope of the state's direct examination. 16. That on April 1, 1996, the trial court erred in denying the defendant's motion for a mistrial based on the court's refusal to permit the defendant's counsel adequate cross-examination of the state's key witness, David Haynes. 17. That on April 1, 1996, the trial court erred in denying the defendant's motion for mistrial based on the prosecutor's violation of the court's previous order preventing introduction of any prior bad acts of the defendant in light of the prosecutor's questions to the state's witness, David Nell, concerning the defendant's smoking of marijuana. 
18, that on or about April 1, 1996, the trial court erred in denying the defendant's motion in limine to prevent the introduction of DNA evidence. That on or about April 2, 1996, the trial court erred in denying defendant's motion in limine to prevent testimony of the state's witness, Brile Clear. 20. That on or about April 3, 1996, the trial court erred in denying defendant's motion for directed verdict on all counts. 21. That the trial court erred in denying the defendant's motion for direct verdict on count 7 of the indictment as to first-degree murder during the commission of aggravated criminal sexual assault since the state introduced no evidence to support commission of the offense of aggravated criminal sexual assault. 22. On April 9, 1996, the trial court erred in permitting the state to call as a rebuttal witness Mr. Franks as a DNA expert over the objection of the defendant. 23. That the trial court erred in denying that the defendant's motion to exclude DNA evidence and permitting the state to introduce said evidence through the testimony of David Metzger and Mr. Franks. 24. That the trial court erred in permitting the state to recall its witness, Jennifer Hahn, to testify on the calculations on the number of sperm identified in samples from the victim, since this evidence and reports of the evidence were not disclosed to the defendant prior to trial. No opportunity for the defendant's experts to review these test results was properly provided and consequently defense counsel could not properly cross-examine the state's witness. 25. That the trial court erred in allowing testimony of convicted felons Harold Crozier and Chris Chester as it was unreliable based on their prior convictions and the manner in which these statements were obtained. 26. That the trial court erred in allowing testimony of conclusion as to the cause of death when the state's expert Dr. John Murphy testified that he could not say with a reasonable degree of medical certainty how the victims died. 27. That the jury improperly based their decision as to the defendant's guilt on evidence never introduced, and in fact in error, and that they relied on evidence on keys taken from the defendant's property at Rochelle Hillmeyer's apartment pursuant to the state's search warrant, executed as a key fitting the victim's front door, when in fact this key was not introduced and in fact this was not a key in which fit the victim's door. But the state, through its continued examination of its witnesses, bringing up this key taken from the defendant's personal property at Rochelle Hillmeyer's, confused the jury and greatly prejudiced the defendant in that they based their decision of guilt on this evidence, which was never introduced and was in fact what the jury thought it to be. 28. That the trial court erred in denying defendant's motion for dismissal of court-appointed counsel without conducting some type of evidentiary hearing as to the merits of defendant's allegations before summary dismissing his motion. 29. That the trial court erred in the second stage of the sentencing hearing in permitting the introduction of victim impact statements of the Tompkins family and Amicucci family. 30. That the trial court erred in sentencing the defendant to death based solely on the death of the three-year-old since this was only a factor to be considered in determining if the defendant qualified to have a court consider the death penalty as a sentencing alternative and not in determining whether or not the defendant should in fact be sentenced to death. 31. That the trial court erred in allowing the state to introduce a 1993 pre-sentence investigative report prepared in People v. Bull, Fulton County Case No. 93CF46, as a substitute for having a pre-sentence investigative report prepared for the current sentencing hearing in violation of 730 Illinois CS. 32. That the trial court erred in ignoring all mitigation introduced by the defendant at the second phase of sentencing as evidenced by the court's comments in delivering the sentence. 33. That the trial court erred in sentencing the defendant to death based on the fact that the defendant raped the victim when in fact no evidence of rape was introduced at any stage of the trial. 34. That the trial court erred in granting the state's motion for discovery pursuant to the Supreme Court Rule 413A on December 1, 1994. 35. That the trial court erred in issuing an order and denying the defendant's motion for court approval of waiver on December 19, 1994. 36. That the trial court erred in denying the defendant's motion to have Venire filled out questionnaire on February 29, 1996. 37. That the trial court erred in denying the defendant's motion to compel discovery of March 6, 1996. 38. That the trial court erred in quashing the defendant's subpoena, Deuces Tecum, to obtain various personal records of David Metzger on or about February 29, 1996. 39. 
that the trial court erred in quashing the defendant's subpoena, Duces Tecum, to obtain dissolution records and files of the attorneys for Donna Tompkins and John Tompkins on February 29, 1996. 40. That the trial court erred in not permitting defendant's DNA expert to be present in court during the testimony of the state's DNA expert. 41. That the trial court erred in denying the defendant's motion in limine regarding state's speculation as to the cause of death. 42. That the trial court erred in denying the defendant's motion to exclude statement of defendant. 43. That the trial court erred in denying defendant's motion in limine regarding excluding prejudicial photographs. 44. That the trial court erred in denying defendant's motion to individually question jurors on death penalty issues. 45. That the trial court erred in admitting the state's exhibits number 53, number 62, and number 67. 46. The trial court erred in failing to provide to the jury, during its deliberations, a copy of the indictment after the defendant specifically so requested and the court advised the defendant that it would do so. And lastly, 47. That the state failed to prove the defendant guilty of the charges beyond a reasonable doubt. The verdict was against the weight of the evidence. The state failed to prove every material allegation of the offense beyond a reasonable doubt. The verdict is based on evidentiary facts which do not exclude every reasonable hypothesis consistent with the innocence of the defendant. Wherefore, for the reasons set forth above, this court is respectfully requested to set aside the convictions and sentence and order a new trial in the alternative Mr. Bull requests that this court vacate his death sentence and remand for a new sentencing hearing dated July 2nd, May 27th, 1996. Respectfully submitted Donald R. Bull, a defendant who, from that moment onward, the state can find him at their mercy for not months, but years. I'm Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic. Spoon River Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio and Radio Verite. The show is produced by August Olson. Editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman. Audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne-Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrisimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or a review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide.